Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi there, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another Ion Travel Podcast. This week, celebrating two great writers, Mark Kurlansky and Pico Iyer. I'm a big fan of Kurlansky, who digs deep in his books into single topics or subjects most of us don't think about but should. Salt, Cod, Paper. Those are just three titles of his books. And he writes about things we encounter and consume every time we travel. And then, one of my heroes, Pico Iyer, whose new book says it all about travel writing, or maybe even about my own travel experience. It's called The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. First up, Mark Kurlansky talks to me about another great writer and traveler, and the name of that book, The Importance of Not Being Earnest, his look at Ernest Hemingway. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cashback events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Mark Kurlansky, welcome. 
Hi, Peter. So I got to, before we get to, to, to Hemingway, which has always been a fascination of mine, uh, let's start with, with Cod because, you know, there are so many people out there when they travel around the world, they go to restaurants and they just order fish and they don't understand what's in the menu. They don't understand the fish. They don't understand where the fish came from. They don't understand the history, the the provenance, if you will. And they also don't yeah. understand, you know, how how endangered some of these these uh, these fishing fishing grounds are. People just don't understand anything about fish. I've been struggling with this for years. Um, it's uh, it's just something that. Uh, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to explain it because apparently it's not explained very well normally. But, uh, you know, people, I, I often, it often gets said that, you know, why do you do these books about these odd subjects? And the answer is, I don't, I don't think they're odd. <laughs> I think they're really <laughs> important. <laughs> um, and, and that's why I do them. Well, let's let's talk about cod for a second, as a as opposed to other fish. Why cod, though? Uh, because cod um, played an important role in a thousand years of Atlantic history. It was the most commercial fish in the Atlantic, and um, uh, so much that happened happened because of cod, including the European. Why Europeans? discovered North America and um, uh, this whole trade patterns and uh, um, Todd has, has always been in the forefront of things and uh, ironically it's the really the first fish that made people start thinking about uh, the decline in fisheries I remember that especially if you look in the uh, up in New England and North Atlantic areas there where so much has been fished out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and not coming back. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to say, you know, overfishing destroys the fishery, but uh, it's not really being overfished anymore and it's not coming back because there's other problems like climate change that are playing a huge role in the, uh, the, the food cycle of the of the North Atlantic in particular. And of course, now we have this perfect storm of climate change, growing water levels, and the, the, the depletion of the fisheries. That's a triple whammy from which most things couldn't come back. Yeah, and, um, you know, as Darwin explained so many years ago, uh, when you start losing species, you, you it leads to losing more species and the whole thing can unravel. Right, that's an interdependency that too many people didn't realize until it was too late. Uh, now, speaking of food or a food substance, your next book was also fascinating, Salt. Because this is something that's ubiquitous. It's something that, uh, it's in our lives every single day. It's in our bodies, whether we like it or not. Uh, if somebody said to me, Mark, in all honesty, I'd like you to do a book on paper, or I'd like you to do, do a book on wood. I wouldn't even know where to start. Um, it, it, there are libraries on it, I suppose. How do you start a book on salt? Uh, the first question is, what is the story? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm I'm an old-time newspaper journalist. And, 
you know, you don't go after something unless you see a story there. And the story of salt is how did this thing that was one of the most valuable and essential commodities become reduced to almost nothing, you know, just this minor thing, uh, which is an interesting story, uh, which I can see, you know, maybe happening to oil. Uh, you know, the things that we value don't always stay valuable. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, you go to certain parts of the world and there's not a shortage of salt. Not at all. Uh, no. Well, you know, if you are by a relatively tame uh, coastline with strong sunlight, you can always make salt and it doesn't cost you much of an investment to do it. Um, but if you're in a northern climate, you have a problem. And before there was refrigeration, uh, you really couldn't have an international economy without salt because uh, pre-industrial revolution, most trade was in food, and you couldn't trade food. It would spoil unless you salted it. So all traded food was salted. So you couldn't have a fishery. You couldn't sell meat. You couldn't sell dairy, which was ended up being cheese. Unless you had salt. And that's, in, in many societies today, it's still done that way. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is that we don't have to have salted food anymore. We can just refrigerate it, but we, we like salted food. <laughs> but salt is not suffering the same problem as cod. No. No, as a matter of fact, um, I suppose uh, salt will, uh, you know, always be there. Although, you know, the the sea is becoming less salty with the melting of the glaciers, climate change, and that's a problem for fish. It it, it upsets the balance. It's it's unbelievable the interdependency and the and the linking here, uh, even when you didn't even even intend on it. It's there. Yes. <laughs> I tend to see everything as linked. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So now that you've opened your mouth on that, Mr. Kurlansky, let's link this all to uh, one of America's iconic writers, Ernest Hemingway. There have been so many books written about him. Uh, and why did you decide that, that uh, you could do a, a different take on him? And what is that different take? Well, uh, absolutely true story. This came to me while fly fishing. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I was uh, fishing for beautiful rainbow trout in the Bigwood River in Idaho, uh, which runs through the town of Ketchum. Uh-huh. And I was fishing at one point, you know, just maybe less than a half a mile from the spot where Hemingway uh, killed himself on the bank of the Bigwood. And it suddenly occurred to me that I was now older than Hemingway ever lived to be, which which was kind of shocking because Ketchum is full of all these pictures of this old guy. You know? And wow, how I'm old was Hemingway when, when he when he shot himself? Uh, Sixty one. Way too young. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm glad I've lived to be older than him. But I I started thinking about how Hemingway by a series of coincidences, has always been in my life. Uh, 
um, starting with the fact that uh, I was in Idaho when he shot himself. Uh, I was a kid. And even as a kid, I wanted to be a writer. And, you know, Hemingway was my ideal of what a writer was and what a writer life was. And the Idaho papers said that he had uh, been killed in an accident, in a gun accident. And my father said, uh, actually, literally, he said, because he had a weird way of talking, he said, accident my foot. (laughs) (laughs) And insisted that, that he shot himself. And this was inconceivable to me because he lived the ideal writer's life. Why he, would he, he shoot did. himself? You were saying to me that, you know, you just happened to be in Idaho as a young kid when he killed himself. And since he'd already aspired to be a writer, there's some sort of uh, amazing energy that that's attached to that, I suppose. Yeah. And, you know, it, it went on in odd sorts of ways. I mean, when I look back at my life, you know, uh, so much of my life was in Hemingway places, not that I wanted to be in Hemingway places, just completely by coincidence. I mean, I lived for about 10 years in Paris, and I've been writing about the Basques in Spain for more than 40 years, and I've been writing about Cuba for about 40 years. And, you know, and I fish and catch in Idaho. All right, so basically what you're trying to say is if you believe in reincarnation, you are Ernest Hemingway. I'm trying not to be, is what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) But... When you talk about all of his adventures, and, and look, I, I've been writing since I'm 17. You read about Hemingway and you go, wow, look what he did. Look where he went. Look at the, uh, you know, he was a manly man. He was a guy who did the, all those adventures. And up until the time he put a gun to his head, he lived to tell about him. Yeah, I mean, the important thing to understand about Hemingway is that he created his own myth, and it's not who he was. They used to sometimes talk about how people don't really know who I am, you know, and if he had said that to me, I would have said, well, Hem, you did that, you know? Uh, I mean, this whole thing about, you know, Hemingway the soldier, he was never a soldier in his life. And, uh, in fact, he was a very outspoken anti-war advocate. You know, a lot of his books starting with A Farewell to Arms and a lot of his short stories, are very anti-war. And when people think of Hemingway, they think of pro-war, but that's not who he was. He was very anti-war and, and spoke out very strongly against war. And Although if you take a look at his legend, one of the things that obviously does ring true is he did travel, didn't he? he I'm sorry, he what? He did travel. Yes, he traveled a lot, and he believed that traveling was important. I traveled a lot, and that traveling has been extremely important to my writing. Uh, I know a lot of countries well, and uh, it comes in handy. Um, But the true Hemingway uh, was a man who cared more about writing than anything else. He was completely dedicated to writing. He traveled a lot because he saw that as a way of uh, enhancing his writing. Um, he he thought that war was a way of seeing life that you could write about. Uh, he thought that bullfighting said things about the human condition that he wanted to write about. Um, I mean, when I you mean, think of Mark, when you think about it, 
and this is not to denigrate him, it's actually to elevate him. He was a, a perfect travel writer. Yes, absolutely. He was a he was a wonderful travel writer. Uh because uh first of all a, a gift for description. Um you know, another thing that keeps getting missed about Hemingway is that he was a very experimental avant-garde writer in an age when modernism was emerging, and he was the great modernist writer. And so with this very spare prose, he described things fantastically. And of course, if we're all living in the shadow of Ernest Hemingway, you have the opportunity in this book to sort of recast that shadow, don't you? Yeah, um, and also my own shadow while I'm at it, you know, because it's kind of a funny thing in a lot of places where, like, I've spent a lot of time in Cuba. In Cuba, people are constantly telling me that I look like Hemingway. And, you know, that's because they really want Hemingway to be still wandering around in Havana. Hey, listen, they I still see the boat every time I go down there. Yeah, I mean, he... Uh, um, he made a huge impact on, uh, on local culture. Although, you know, he wasn't really that involved in local culture. I know, uh, but Fidel Castro embraced him as well. Oh, as, as you know, in, in a way that's very typical of Cubans. Yeah, he, he worshipped him. He, you know, he claimed that uh, for whom the bell tolls taught him how to conduct guerrilla warfare. I don't believe that in a minute, for a minute. <laughs> you know, Batista would still be in power if his guidebook was from the belt holes. <laughs> <laughs> but, it makes, but it makes for a good story now, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. Wow. Um, well, listen, in, in a world of revisionist history, it's nice to see that you've done a book that actually starts to deconstruct that revisionist history and tell a, a, a much more you know, accurate story of a man who still has mythical proportions. Yeah, yeah, he does, and the, the the myths live on, and and you know, as often happened with happens with mythical people, the true story is really better. I like it better. My thanks to Mark. I've been reading Pico Iyer for years. First drawn to his writing by a magazine piece he wrote called Video Night in Kathmandu, about the clash of Western television culture with old-school Nepal. He's written some of the great travel books, The Art of Stillness, Autumn Light, and his latest, The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution. Personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. 
Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Pico, welcome back. So nice always to talk to you, Peter. Thank you. So I'm going to start with the obvious first question, and that is, what do you actually mean by the half-known life? The first thing, I, I always feel, I bet you know the same sensation, this age of information, we know less about the rest of the world than ever before because we get so much of it through screens or at second hand. So that's why I really try and go to see the places that are in the news, whether it's Iran or North Korea or Cuba or Yemen. I feel sitting at home in California, I really can't begin to know the human reality of those places. And so I, I want to go and experience them in the round and, and be surprised by them, sometimes defeated by them. And of course, you know, to, to your point, most of us get our information secondhand or thirdhand on the web. Most of that stuff on the web is not necessarily reliable or true. Uh, and it forms opinions and it shapes images that may be far removed from reality. Exactly. I mean, I think all the images in the world can never add up to real life. And I think when we're getting things through a small screen, what we really lack is um, the larger picture. And streaming is a wonderful thing, but what we don't get through streaming is, is texture and complication and ambiguity. And I know whenever I'm sitting at home and I think about Syria or Iran or, or um, China, I figure I know everything about them. And as soon as I get off the plane in Damascus or Havana or Beijing, I find I don't know a thing. And I also find that when I'm at home and I think about those places, I think about everything that's different about them politically and culturally. And as soon as I get off the plane, uh, I get into a car and the taxi driver is worried about his kids or he's complaining about the economy. He sounds just like my friends and neighbors in California. So I'm reminded of that human sameness that we share despite all the differences. And of course, given the, uh, the, 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 the the speed at which information travels now, when you get into that cab, there's a good chance that that taxi driver just saw the same movie you did or, or, or had the same <laughs> conversation about the politics that, that you did. I, I remember, this goes back many, many years, in the, in the Middle East, we were in, in Egypt, and we were driving through the Sinai Desert about a nine-hour trip uh, to get to the, to the, uh, to the, to the water. And, uh, and the border of Israel. And there's nothing on this road other than sand followed by more sand. And someone sitting in the car with me who didn't have much of an attention span, uh, all of a sudden, and uh, you can't make this up, and, and by the way, the driver spoke no English. He was operating on a map. Um, and, you know, we only knew the word yella, which meant go. Um, and as we're driving, my friend sitting in the back of the car goes, na, 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 na. I have no idea why he did that, but he did. And all of a sudden, the driver screeches to a halt. And sand and rocks and dirt are coming in through every open window in the car. And he turns around to me and smiles and goes, book him, Dano. It was, uh, now, you had to travel thousands of miles to the middle of the Sinai Desert to realize that American culture had preceded me in the worst way. <laughs> but... Yeah, and the beautiful thing about that story is if you had been in Bolivia or Mongolia, the same thing. <laughs> they would have known every last line from everything on TV in America. And having said that then, that brings me to my next question for you, which is, you know, one of the words that I usually hate, and please forgive me when I say this, Pico, is the word paradise because it's used in every brochure. It's, every, it's in every guidebook. Uh, everything is paradise. Everything is beautiful. Everything is wonderful. And yet, 
it really gets down to a definition of terms, doesn't it? It does. And, and what I find is when I go to Bali or Tahiti or the Seychelles, you know, some of the biggest candidates for number one paradise in the world, it's probably paradise for me visiting for two weeks, but it's probably something very, very different for the people living there. It's real life for them. The paradise is, is just this projection. And so in this most recent book of mine, I thought the only paradise I trust is one that exists in the middle of real life and in the face of death. So I went to really difficult and unexpected places like Iran and North Korea, because I thought if I can find some piece of light or hope or calm there, it's one I can trust. It's not just a fantasy to do with uh, waving palm trees and golden beaches. Now, if my experience in North Korea is, is the same as yours, you couldn't really travel by yourself. Correct. Uh, and of course, it's uh, technically, uh, they call it a worker's paradise or a people's paradise, but I think that's mostly because people have nothing to do with it, with the leader's vision. So you're absolutely right. It's the only place I've been where even if I wanted to take a run in the morning, I was hopefully told, oh, you're free to do that as long as your minder is always two inches away from you. So it's not my idea of a paradise for sure, but it sort of brings home that basic point, which is, your idea of paradise is probably not mine. And if you have a leader who says, this is paradise, that's probably not going to correspond with the citizens' view of, of what, what's paradise. So it's, it's kind of low-hanging fruit, but it was a way of, of looking at how utopia is not the same as paradise. And you have a whole society that's orchestrated like a film set, the way North Korea is, and probably that's not going to be anybody's idea of, of heaven. We're talking with Pico Iyer, the author of The Half-Known Life, in search of paradise. So tell me, Pico, when you did go to North Korea, did you find any ray of hope? I found a little piece of humanity, which is good, because that's what we don't hear about. Every, everyone listening to this program has some vision of North Korea, and that's very similar, as you know, to what you see when you go there. But just to see the little Chanel clip in the guide of uh, my charming, um, in the hair of my charming young guide, or just hearing a North Korean handler in the safety of a minivan, craning forwards and asking how Apple computers has changed since Steve Jobs died, reminded me of this human reality, which is exactly what we don't get. You know, what I find frightening about North Korea is that when any one of us hears that name, we just think of one face, not 25 million others. And that's just what that one face uh, wants. And the other sort of scary thing about North Korea is that I think the reason it's so dangerous is that people in North Korea are not allowed to have any sense of who you or I am. They have no, we are just an abstraction or a kind of dark name on the map. So it's much easier to launch a nuclear missile against just a name than if you see that the, the faces or yeah, the voices. But sometimes what alarms me more is I come back to the U.S. and we know so little about North Korea, even though we don't have a government that won't allow us to travel or won't allow us to look at a foreign newspaper the way we do. So we have no excuse for our ignorance. <laughs> they, they have a big excuse for this. Well, you know, the definition of ignorance, at least the one that I follow, is it's not the absence of knowledge, it's the conscious refusal to accept it. I like that. And I, w I would also say uh, it's the unawareness of how little you know. In other words, I'm often spouting off and I'm sure I, I know everything. And that's probably a proof of how ignorant I am. If, if only I left my home, I would quickly see um, how little I know. And, and that's probably one of the main reasons I travel. You know, when I went to Iran, I had been researching it for 30 years. I'd written long articles 
on on it from research for Time magazine and the Smithsonian. I'd even published a 350-page book, partly set there, though I'd never been. And within four hours, I had learned more on the ground than from four years of reading and research far away. And I'm sure that, you know, that's your experience. We go into any place with notions of it, and the first thing that happens is our simple ideas are exploded. Of course, assumption is the mother of all screw-ups, but travel without context is somewhat worthless. Um, I want to go back to something else you said, Pico, about that Chanel clip in the hair of your guide. Um, there's the argument that could be made that that may not be considered progress just because our American culture or Western culture is seeping into theirs. Exactly. But it's just proof that North Korea isn't as one-dimensional and homogeneous as we expect. Um, and as you know from having been there, when you go, every movement is very carefully scripted and they only allow you to see certain things. But every now and then you get a flash of something you didn't expect and you realize there's this whole complex life going on behind the stage sets. And that's something I never get when I'm you know, back at home thinking about North Korea. So just to get that glimpse, whatever it is, whether it's you know, a bowling alley or a pizza parlor, or, as you say, <laughs> they're not the finest achievements of, of human civilization, but they just remind us that North Korea is more complex than our ideas of it. You know, when we talk about North Korea, um, we talk about Iran, when we talk about other places in the world that are considered by so many people off-limits right now. I'll throw Syria into that for all the obvious reasons. When you went to Iran, um, it's a country that you were certainly aware of. It's a country that we've been reading about. Uh, we were certainly, I was covering the, you know, the U.S. Embassy situation back in 1979 and the taking of the hostages. So we all have our you know, predisposed assumptions and predisposed beliefs. What was the first thing that changed for you when you were on the ground in Iran? Uh, I got out, out of the plane in the holy city of Mashhad at three in the morning. I was greeted by my guide, who spoke better English than I do, because he had been educated at a boarding school near London in the 1970s before the revolution. We got into the car and we started driving through the streets. He pointed out every passerby who looked like Mr. Bean or John Cleese. <laughs> We arrived at the luxury hotel left over from again before the revolution. The Beatles um, yesterday was being piped through the lobby. There was a little sign in one corner of the lobby pointing to a mosque, but right next to the mosque were these beautiful boutiques selling the latest fashions from Paris. And then I went up to my room and I turned on the TV, and what did I see but Piers Morgan on CNN. So literally, I've only arrived at my room. I've been in the country 30 minutes. And I'm realizing this is a much richer more international and more sophisticated place than I had imagined. And I can genuinely say I, for every hour for the next 16 weekdays, I was, I was being startled and, and taken aback. And I remember the first surprise had actually come before I even got there because I was traveling on an American passport. And people I knew who had been to Iran came up to me and said, look, we've really got to warn you about one thing. When you go to Iran as an American, you are going to get more dinner invitations and more friends and more people who want to practice their English on you than you know what to do with. I mean, it's very, very welcoming people who are more than sophisticated enough to distinguish between our government and our people and between their government and their people. But you said it was a warning. <laughs> it was a warning uh, that, you know, remember that 20 different people are going to invite you to dinner every <laughs> evening. And the only reason it didn't happen to me was... 
I'm dark-skinned, my parents from India, so Iranians took me as a fellow Iranian. <laughs> they weren't as friendly to me as they would have been to you, probably, or to somebody who looked like Brad Pitt. But so, they still <laughs> were really yeah, civilized, gracious, and endlessly fascinating people, and very fluent in English, most of the people that I met. So you didn't eat that well, but you actually had a great experience. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't eat that well, but uh, yes, it's the single richest and most interesting place I've been in my 48 years of of constant travel. Wow. You know, it's, it's, what's amazing to me is, and you and I are similar in this respect, that our culture is often thrown back at us in, in the nicest possible intentions everywhere we go. Um, and as a, as sort of like an opening door to a conversation, um, I remember in, in, uh, Shanghai, uh, 25 years ago, th- there's an old hotel there on the Bund called the Peace Hotel, which they changed. Cha- I remember that one, yeah. Right. And it used to be called the Cathay Hotel. And and uh, in the lobby, they had four clocks that told you the time in Beijing, in East Berlin, and in Moscow. <laughs> I mean, that's that was their <laughs> that was their concept of world time. And across the street, they had opened up a small little cafe, which they called the Peace Cafe. And I walked in, and the menu was in English. The menu was all American food. Um, and the, the, uh, the maitre d' there, if you will call him that, had a perm. And I was just trying to, to you know, adjust to all this. And I ordered a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. And I'm listening to the, to the playlist on the stereo, and it's better than the one I had. And, and when it was time to leave... I said, uh, hey, thanks a lot. And he said, see you later. I said, okay, see you later. He says, no, you're supposed to say, in a while, crocodile. <laughs> I remember the famous jazz bar in, in the Peace Hotel, the first time I went there. It was the end of the 20th century. They were oh, with the old musicians, those old musicians. Yes. Yeah, from the 1920s, 1930s. So, Peter, I'm, I'm talking to you from our little apartment in Japan, and in Japan, little kids will occasionally say to their mothers, hey, mom, do you know, they have McDonald's even in America. <laughs> or they'll say to their mother, do you know, that they, they play baseball in America. They're just convinced it's a Japanese sport because American culture is so deeply embedded here. And of course, that's what we find also in the context of paradise. I remember if I go to some magical place <clears throat> high up in the Himalayas that looks like Shangri-La, and I say to the people, wow, this is, this is like the Garden of Eden. This is paradise. They'll say, forget it. We know what the real paradise is. It's, it's called Santa Monica. It's the, you know, the cool place where they're shooting Baywatch and Pamela Anderson is running in slow motion across the beach. That's paradise. And from their point of view, it's understandable um, that it would be. And, so, now, and, yeah, and, um, now, and now we come full circle to one of the essays I love so much that you wrote called Video Night in Kathmandu. Yes, yes, exactly. That was in 1985 I was making that trip, and uh, they certainly knew more about Michael Jackson and Thriller in, in the foothills of the Himalayas than uh, my friends did in New York City, where I was living at the time. Um, and, you know, it's no surprise, because we in the United States are so keen to practice yoga and drive our Japanese cars and go to our Thai restaurants. So, of course, when you go to India or Japan or Thailand, they're equally excited to get American culture and all this many forms. It's, it's, I'm, I'm happy that all these cultural influences are flying in every direction in the world because it wasn't happening, I think, a hundred years ago. My thanks to Pico and to Mark Kurlansky. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel Podcast. 
For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel and answers to your travel questions, just be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you have a clear course. Just head to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.